Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. If you feel like your natural deodorant has rubbed your underarms raw, not stopped the stink, or you haven't made the switch from aluminum, try Just Ingredients Organic Magnesium Deodorant, containing high levels of magnesium to neutralize odor-causing bacteria. It is sure to leave you smelling fresh all day. Formulated without baking soda, which can feel like sandpaper to the skin, Just Ingredients Deodorant uses organic beeswax to soothe the skin, ensuring smooth application. Just Ingredients is committed to its ingredients and only uses the highest quality natural ingredients that come from the earth. Just Ingredients magnesium deodorants never contain aluminum, baking soda, artificial fragrance, filler ingredients, propylene glycol, phthalates, or parabens. So if you want a non-irritating organic natural deodorant that actually works, you want to try Just Ingredients magnesium deodorant today. Available in six scents and unscented. You are sure to find one you love. For 20% off your deodorant, use code JIPODCAST4 at justingredients.us. Once again, that's code JIPODCAST4, like the number four, at justingredients.us for 20% off your deodorant purchase. Dr. Kazell is a podiatrist and fellowship-trained diabetic foot salvage surgeon. He is a global key opinion leader on the diabetic lower limb, advanced wound healing and tissue repair. He is the founder of LPP Clinical Research and a national and principal investigator on over 60 plus clinical research trials and post-market surveillance studies dedicated to diabetic foot ulcers, leg ulcers and soft tissue infections of the foot. Dr. Kazell is a published author, international speaker, served on medical advisory boards, heavily involved in the development of study and protocol design, and an advocate for diabetic foot education. He recently completed a multi-year diabetic foot research sabbatical studying current best practice wound and amputation prevention strategies on the at-risk diabetic and advanced age foot. Today we have Dr. Kazell with us, and I am so excited to talk to him about diabetes and his specialty in podiatry. So welcome to the show, Dr. Kazell. Thank you so much for having me, Carolyn. I'm really excited to be here. Well, thank you. First of all, tell my listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and maybe how you got started studying podiatry. Sure. Uh, it seems like that should be a really simple answer, but let me see what I can do. It's a bit convoluted. Um, I was born and raised in Southern California, uh, went to University of California, San Diego. Somehow I ended up in podiatry school. I can't tell you why or how I wasn't necessarily drawn to it. Uh, but while I was in podiatry school and undergoing my surgical residency, I was really drawn to the number of individuals that we were seeing with diabetes and diabetic foot complications. And we noticed like year over year, it was just getting more and more and progressive and the disease state was really starting to take its toll. And it wasn't just the geography with which we were in, we were starting to see that amongst the entire discipline in podiatry. And so uh, across the country, we were seeing that. And as I moved through residency and into uh, my diabetic foot fellowship, uh, obviously that's what I focused on entirely at that point in time. And then 
you know, fast forward decades, uh, I underwent a multi-year diabetic foot research fellowship that was aimed at looking at different ways to prevent uh, individuals with diabetes that were afflicted with diabetic foot disease undergoing that first wound. So we understand that if you can prevent that first wound, that's where we're going to have the most progress and a long, healthy life in regards to managing diabetes. So that's just kind of a, a brief snapshot. I don't want to take up too much of your time talking about things in my past. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's good to know your background. And it's always interesting to see how people got started in their professions and why things like that. But I know you work with a lot of people with diabetes. So that's where I want to start this whole conversation. Can you explain to my listeners just what diabetes actually is? It's a word we hear a lot, but maybe some of us don't know exactly what it is. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that oftentimes we kind of just gloss right over it without having a true understanding of what it really means. And obviously, professionally, I'm not an endocrinologist, and so I can't speak to endocrine disorders like they would. But what I can say is that diabetes is essentially just a chronic condition in which we have difficulty managing our digested intake or our food sources into forms of storable energy. What does that really mean, right? So everybody listening out there is like, oh my gosh, here we go again. But really what we're saying is that at the end of the day, after meals and moving forward, we have elevated blood sugars over time. And those elevated blood sugars are what wreak havoc on our body and our organ systems. Okay, so why do we have the elevated blood sugar though, those with diabetes? So individuals with diabetes really... That's a very complex question, and let's just break it down into two specific types. So type 1 diabetes is typically an autoimmune disorder, or we've had exposure to a virus where our body is essentially saying we are insulin deficient. We don't have the ability for insulin to act as a transporter or help move the blood sugar along to the cells where it needs to go. So we don't have the insulin that we need, therefore our blood sugars rise. Type 2 diabetes is remarkably different yet similar. And so in type 2 diabetes, which is about 90% of the population of individuals with diabetes, which by the way is about 34 million people in the United States today, oh, so wow. it's an astronomical figure, we're looking at individuals that normally would have a fully functional pancreas, which is what actually produces and distributes the insulin into the bloodstream after we've had a meal. In the beginning, it may do fine, but depending on food choices and a myriad of other factors over time, our body develops resistance to this insulin. They call it hyperinsulinemia because we continue to put out more and more and more insulin to trying to fight the effects of the increased blood sugar and more blood sugar and more blood sugar over time. And then eventually we go from having too much insulin or hyperinsulinemia to being insulin deficient like those individuals afflicted with type one. So it's this full circle effect, but at the end of the day, I like to tell my patients in treatment rooms that essentially what we're looking at is a chronic condition in which our blood sugar is too high for various reasons. We have difficulty getting that blood sugar out of our bloodstream. And that's what leads to complications 
in regards to our eyes, our kidneys, our heart, our GI system or our stomach, our bladders, our feet and hands. There's just a plethora of things that are afflicted. And it's the comorbid conditions that really are such a detriment to our body more so than just the elevated blood sugars. Wow. Yeah, that can affect a lot. So I'm curious about this 34 million with diabetes. That is a ton of people. So why do you think it's becoming so prevalent in America today? Well, it's a great question, Carolyn. I'd say, you know, 34 million people in the United States, about 550 to 600 million people worldwide afflicted with diabetes by 2030. We have 90 million individuals in the United States that are defined as being pre-diabetic. So they're on the fence of having fasting blood sugars that would basically put them into that category of having diabetes within, you know, one to two years or maybe even sooner. And so the question that you pose is, why is this occurring? What is the change? What, what are we doing differently, right? And I don't know that we know the answer to that. I think some of the medical scientists and some of the, the PhDs in nutritional biology and some of these individuals working on different facets of diabetes could speak much more eloquently to that than I could. But what I can say is that we're seeing a society that is becoming more sedentary. We're seeing a society that's becoming much more heavily reliant on processed foods. We're seeing a society that is really requiring more and more time for other things. And so eating has become just one of those things we do quickly on our way to doing something else, drive-throughs, for example. Um, and I think poor food choice, I, I think it's a combination of events. The other thing that I should say is that our elderly population is rising. And as our elderly population is rising, we're seeing a greater rate of diabetes amongst individuals over the age of 60. So approximately 25% of individuals over the age of 60 are now afflicted with type two diabetes. And so we say, well, why is that the case? And well, there's many different theories behind that. We have to believe that with each and every birthday, potentially our insulin resistance to insulin deficiency again is occurring and that we are unable to get that blood sugar from being inside those blood vessels to their appropriate endpoints or destinations and then once again, we're allowing the, the blood sugar to wreak havoc by all the complications. Okay, so as you're talking, I'm thinking, well, I do not want to be one of those 25% over 60 with type 2 <laughs> diabetes. And I know there's a lot of elderly with type 2 diabetes. My mom, my mother-in-law, I know a lot of people. And so people that are not quite 60 yet or younger, are there lifestyle factors that could keep one from getting diabetes or diet? factors that could help them not get diabetes or not necessarily? Carolyn, I think that's the, the million dollar question. And, and that's what I think about every morning when I wake up. And part of the reason for that is probably it's the nature of the work that I do. But I think that's a shared consensus uh, amongst most people across the country right now, if not the world, that are kind of encroaching in that latter third of life. And I think the answer to that is there are things that we can be doing. There's conscious decisions that we could be making. Something that nobody really talks about or doesn't talk about enough is something called metabolic syndrome. 
And it wasn't introduced until 1998 in medical dictionaries. But I think it has a profound impact on type 2 diabetes. And I think it has a profound impact on overall health and wellness for individuals like ourselves that are progressing through life, maybe doing okay, but wanting to make sure that we have options and choices as we age and that we age gracefully. And so I would say things that we definitely could be doing, obviously diet, we want diets that are high in fiber, lean protein, low in cholesterols. That's something all of us should be attempting to do. But what about the other stuff that people aren't necessarily talking about? And this is where I think it gets really interesting. So metabolic syndrome is five different states. So we talk about elevations in blood sugar, fasting blood sugar, I should say, elevated blood pressure, an increase in our triglycerides, a decrease in our good cholesterol, or increased obesity or what they call abdominal obesity. If we have three of those five states, we already are being defined as having metabolic syndrome. They know that metabolic syndrome is very closely tied to diabetes. So I would say working with your primary care providers, working with your nurse practitioners or mid-levels, whoever it is that you're seeing on a daily basis or weekly or monthly basis, depending on what you may or may not have going on, I think that those five variables, in addition to diet and in addition to an active lifestyle, is probably the key to moving forward as gracefully as possible. Well, I was going to say those five things that you mentioned for metabolic syndrome, those five are highly tied to diet and exercise. Absolutely. And you know what's interesting, Carolyn, when we start talking about metabolic syndrome is they see metabolic syndrome in the African-American, Hispanic, Asian-American, and Native American populations much more so than others. Well, that is the same populations that seems to afflict type 2 diabetes more predominantly. Oh, that's so interesting. Got, yeah, it's very interesting when you start to dive into it. Okay, so let me ask you this about diabetes. Is diabetes reversible or is it a lifelong disease? Another great question. So by definition, diabetes is not curable, but we have found and now I'm coming at this from the podiatric world, but obviously I speak with a lot of colleagues that are endocrinologists, internal medicine doctors, active researchers on, on diabetes and nutrition, uh, nutritional biochemists at the PhD level. And what they believe to be the case is that, yes, it is reversible on an individual basis. Now, what do they mean by that? I think what they mean is that with doing all of the things that we just talked about, lifestyle modification, increasing our activity levels, making conscious decisions in regards to our diet, and being heavily focused on reversing any of the negative effects in regards to metabolic syndrome, I think we do have the ability to get our blood sugars back down to a point where we do not need medical co-management for that condition. So is that the case just for type 2 diabetes, though? Yes. Okay. So type one is a lifelong disease. Type two can be reversible. Yes. Okay. On an individual basis. And the reason for that is, is what you already know. And it's a great question in that type one individuals are autoimmune. Their pancreas doesn't possess the ability to produce and distribute insulin, which is obviously requisite in managing our blood sugars. 
Okay, talking about diet and diabetes, do you think it's all the added sugar that is in all of our food that's also contributing? Because I find hidden sugar in everything from ketchup to, I mean, you name it, there's sugar in there. Yeah, when you talk with all like the the registered dietitians or certified diabetic nutritionists and things like that, everybody seems to be talking about just the processed carbohydrates or processed foods or refined sugars. I think it's a combination of all of those. And I really do think that we're putting so much emphasis on time at this point that everybody's looking for that quick thing to kind of move them forward to to whatever is next on their plate, whether it's a mom trying to manage a household of three or dad trying to get home or mom trying to get home from work or whatever it may be. But I think that I think GMO is a very big part of this, to be honest. And I think all of that in combination with that, that metabolic syndrome plays a very active role. I would consider that all to be under one umbrella. Well, we could do a whole show on GMOs, but we won't even open that can of worms. But Yeah, I'll leave, I'll leave that up to you. <laughs> exactly. But time is a huge thing. And I, I had an interesting thought when I first met my brothers. Now it's his wife, but she's mm-hmm. from Brazil and she was here in America visiting. And she was like, it's so surprising to me because in Brazil, when we're in a hurry or the little kids need a snack, the moms hand them an apple or some strawberries or a pear or a banana. She's like, here in America, when anyone is in a hurry and their kids want a food, everybody just hands them a processed snack, like a processed granola bar or processed something. And she's like, the sugar and all those things just is so surprising to me. And so it is time. But if we educate ourselves, we can actually provide a better snack that is full of fiber and vitamins and nutrients rather than just sugar. Absolutely. And to just add to that real quickly, When you speak with individuals from other parts of the world that have come over to the United States, they talk about how sweet even the bread is here in the United States, something that maybe you or I wouldn't even think about because it's something that we're so used to. But literally everything is just slightly different here in the United States. It is true. And she even said that she was like, oh, the food here is so sweet. I can't even handle most of it. Yeah, it's amazing. It is. So let's talk about podiatry now and what that correlation is with diabetes. My dad actually was a type one diabetic from age 20 on. And so I'm very familiar with this of him not wanting to get sores or protecting his feet, things like that. But what is the correlation between the two? So we touched on it just briefly when we were talking about diabetes and the complications associated with diabetes. And specific to the lower extremity, what happens is we know that about 70% of individuals with diabetes end up with the development of what's called diabetic peripheral neuropathy with a loss of protective sensation. Wow, that sounds like a big term, right? So let's just break that down. (laughs) Okay, let's just make it really easy. What that really means is 70% of individuals with diabetes end up having abnormal sensation to their feet. Okay, that, that makes sense. Right. And, and without appropriate sensation to their feet, they're more prone to friction, blisters, wounds, foreign bodies. You'd be amazed how many people step on sewing needles and do not realize it. And all of these variables, as you go down the causal pathway, end up resulting in an open wound, 
An open wound has a 50% likelihood of becoming infected. An infected wound has a 20% likelihood of going on to amputation. And so you can see we have to prevent that first wound from ever occurring, which means we have to be getting access to these individuals early and often. Typically from the date of diagnosis of diabetes is when we would like to have them. Unfortunately, there's a lot of variables that come into play, but we need them before they don't have their sensation. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so are there certain ways that they can avoid some of these foot problems, like in the future, things to prevent them? Yeah, I think once again, everything starts with education, right? Whether it's our primary care provider uh, doing a good job, not only taking off individuals with diabetes, taking their socks off at all of their wellness visits or their comprehensive visits, making sure that there's nothing going on outwardly. If they have diabetes, they need to be seen by their podiatrist at a minimum once a year if they still have protective sensation to their feet. If they don't, then there needs to be a myriad of other things that should be going on behind the scenes to make sure that we are giving them the education that they need so that their health and wellness continues as they move forward through life. That's just specific to education. What can they be doing on a daily basis, right, at home? Daily inspection of their feet, making sure they're wearing appropriate shoes. They need enough room in the toe box where we would wiggle our toes. We need to make sure that that toe box has enough depth and width so they're not developing blisters or wounds or you know, some sort of micro trauma going on to the foot that in a normal individual, we would feel and say, ow, and take our shoe off. They won't feel that if they have not enough sensation to the feet. Diabetic socks, people think that it's silly, but it's extremely important. The construction of the sock alone really adds a protective layer or cushion to that foot. And hydration status, we always talk about moisture and hydration. They're actually two different variables, but an individual should have a regimen, a hygiene regimen, where when they get out of the shower with their feet still damp, they should be putting on a moisturizing lotion that's free of fragrance or scent, right? That, that doesn't have any of these parabens or phthalates or, you know, there's a million different things we could talk about that's probably well beyond this conversation that you and I may love talking about on the side, but they need to be doing all of these things on a daily basis to help ensure their foot's wellness as best as possible. Well, I love that you say uh, a lotion without the parabens and phthalates and all of those things, because that is what I try to teach on a daily basis of how to choose the better choice product. So I'm glad you slipped that in right there. (laughs) Well, and and I must say, I, I really appreciate the work that you do and your Instagram page, because With such a following, you have the ability to affect or create change. And I think it's important. And I think you are coming at it from an educational perspective and you're showing individuals, here's option A, here's option B. And I know I'm oversimplifying things, but if you can help your followers understand why B might be better than A, that is such profound impact who knows what positive impact that has on their lives. And I think that's intriguing. And that's why I retired from active practice to get into full-time education in addition to our research work for the very same reason that you do what you do. 
Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you for your nice words. I appreciate that. And of course, it is all about change. And that's why you're also here on the podcast. So we can educate people about diabetes and change and things like that. But talking about um, the feet. So just tell me, what are some signs that people should be looking for to know if anything is wrong with their feet? So I would say daily inspection is probably the the gatekeeper. I think, you know, before when you get out of bed in the morning, before you go to bed at night or anytime you take your shoes off, I think you need to be looking at your feet. And that sounds redundant, but it's not. That's the, the single greatest thing you could do. What are we looking for? It could be something as benign as a red spot or a rash, or you may notice that you're starting to have some tingling sensations or pattern numbness. Anything that might be concerning to you is absolutely concerning to us. So anything that would be considered out of the norm for your normal day is something that a podiatrist that's astute in the diabetic foot is going to want to see and help manage. Okay. So it's simple, nothing too complex by any means. No, I think the best thing we could ever do is make things extremely simple for the patient and allow us to create and tailor a plan for them from a preventive perspective so that they never have to undergo any of the stuff that we never like talking about. Well, okay, talking about things that we don't like talking about, something I found interesting was that you've done over 5,000 lower amputations, which is crazy to me. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely not a number I'm proud of, that's for sure but obviously they were necessary. And what happens is if we get back to that causal pathway of the development of diabetes, 70% of individuals with diabetes develop the neuropathy, abnormal sensation in their feet, right? That 70% of individuals are extremely high risk for the development of a wound. Approximately a 34% lifetime risk of developing a wound or 4% annualized risk of developing the wound. And so you start looking at the lifetime of an individual with diabetes, they are at very high risk for the development of a wound. And once again, I know that sounds redundant, but I think it's a point that we really need to to look at. So we have the neuropathy. We don't have great sensation. We develop a callus in an area of high pressure or a crack or a fissure in our heel. We don't know what's there because we can't feel it. We're not looking at our feet because we don't know that we should be. Most of us don't look at the bottom of our foot. And over time that breaks down, it turns into a wound. Once we have the wound, like we talked about before, 50% of those wounds become infected before they can become closed. Wow. 20% of those infected wounds end up in the hospital and undergo amputation. So for every hundred individuals, roughly 10 individuals are going to undergo an amputation. So if you look at just where I practice, for example, the greater Fresno Metroplex has about a million people. That'd be 100,000 people afflicted with diabetes that we know of. That'd be 70,000 individuals that have abnormal sensation to their feet. Out of those 70,000 individuals that have abnormal sensation to their feet, a significant number are going to develop wounds And once we develop the wound, we all know that causal pathway because Sean's talking about it too much on this podcast. (laughs) Well, no, I'm glad to know all of this. But tell me, is that wound just not treatable, healable, or it spreads so much that amputation is the only resolution at this point? Or what has caused this? 
Yeah, great question, Carolyn. And, and we often ask ourselves this when we're in the operating room. Sometimes we feel like, are we doing a good enough job educating our patient on, as to what's going on? Is the patient compliant? All right. Are they doing what they should be doing as well? I would say that there's several factors that contribute to the causal pathway in which an individual undergoes an amputation. With elevated blood sugars over time, there's destruction to the blood vessels, which ultimately alter our blood flow. Blood flow is necessary in order for a wound to heal. We have to get the oxygen and nutrients down to the foot or lower extremity where the wound is present in the first place. The abnormal sensation, there's a million different things going on at the cellular level that also contribute to wounds healing in a slow manner. In addition to that, that whole metabolic syndrome that we've talked about is obviously also contributing to poor or slow wound healing. So even though we practice advanced wound healing modalities, we try to offload the wound, we debride, or for lack of a better term, clean the wound bed on a weekly basis. We have primary and secondary dressings that are probably second to none at this point in the United States. We have access to any antibiotic that we would need. We still struggle at the end of the day just because of the, the nature of diabetes in general. Wow, that is crazy. I have experienced this, though, because with my dad, he had some wounds that needed to be taken care of. And then I did have a grandpa with the lower leg amputated as he got older. And so I understand how tricky these wounds are and how dangerous they really can be if we're not careful. So I appreciate you talking about all of that. Absolutely. So you were talking about in this uh, surgical room, like talking if you had educated the patients enough. So my question for you is, where are we now and where should we be in healthcare as it pertains to diabetic foot wellness? So fantastic question. And this is the space with which I kind of live now, not just from a research perspective, but in an education or wound prevention type of model. Uh, I think the healthcare system in real time is extremely reactive. Like we were talking about before, most podiatrists are never seeing individuals with diabetes before they don't have sensation to their feet. And so by the time we actually get to them, statistically speaking, at least, we're already struggling. And so part of that is because of the payer system or insurances and everything else that come along with it. There's a limited number of visits that allow you to do a limited number of things. And I'm sure you've experienced this with what you were willing to share with your family members. And it needs to change. We need a much more proactive model. We need a model of care that brings individuals in on a monthly basis for routine care, for blood flow checks, for sensation checks, for nail care, for callus care, for skin care. One thing we've never done in the past and aren't currently doing outside of my facility that I know of is actually educating the individuals on the difference between moisturizing and hydration levels and the differences of what pH levels to the skin mean. And there's so many different things that are just unbelievable to those of us that are spending time and energy trying to address all of this. But we need facilities that are dedicated to 
diabetic foot prevention programs. And if you think about it, Carolyn, I don't know that it's much different, and I'm not trivializing by any means, if you look at the success that we had with breast and prostate cancer, those are no longer even on the scary list of cancers anymore. In fact, behind lung and pancreatic cancer, a neuroischemic wound on the lower limb is the third leading cause of death in the United States. Oh, that's but interesting. But we're still waiting for the wound to occur And then we put our reactive model in place, whether it's the provider, the insurance companies, we just don't know what to do because we're relying on outdated evidence. Oh, interesting. So you're saying that we've done a good job educating women, for instance, on breast cancer and preventative things. And so that's why it's not as scary or that we've put a lot of money into research of helping those with breast cancer. I would say that it's probably both. I would think that we've heightened the awareness. And when I say we, I definitely don't mean me in that arena. But as a medical community, I think our medical scientists and our pharmaceutical firms have made significant advancements. I think technology in general has allowed us to move forward in a dramatic fashion. But ultimately, I think screening early and often and catching things in its infancy is crucial to positive outcomes. And so you're saying we need the same with diabetics and their foot issues, that they need Uh, the education, the preventative um, education, and the money into researching how to do better at healing. Absolutely. I think we need all of the above. Well, and I love that you talk about the preventative part and educating people because that is so important. But I also understand talking to primary care doctors that they just don't have the time to do that when they're visiting with their patient in their room. So where does this education come from? I think the education has to come from dedicated facilities that have a willingness to begin this process. And and this is what we're working on right now is is dedicated space, dedicated time, dedicated providers to doing nothing other than diabetes awareness, diabetes education, complication education and management, prevention of first wound by this overarching theme that these individuals that have diabetes need to be seen on a monthly basis. And specific to the lower extremity, I think that it is, a, is going to be in the next five years, a requirement by insurance companies. I think it will be mandated as soon as we can prove it through evidence collection that by doing this, these individuals' rates of wounding decreases by upwards of 75%. And we will get there. Wow, that's interesting. Okay, so if I have listeners that are listening right now with diabetes or they're getting older in age, what are some questions that they should be asking their primary care doctor in regards to this? So I'm a, I'm a big patient advocate. And so I, and I think that as patients, we have to act as consumers as well, right? And so I always tell my patients that when you go to the produce section at the grocery store, not to trivialize, you don't necessarily pick up three pieces of fruit and put those in your cart. You kind of look around a little bit, you see what's there, you see what looks best, and then you make your decision on what you're going to purchase. 
I think your primary care doctors need to be interviewed. You need to make sure that they have the necessary skill set to manage you if you have diabetes. So I would ask them, okay, I have diabetes. What are your plans for me in regards to the best or most qualified diabetic podiatrist in town? Who's the kidney doctor that you have in town that you plan on referring me to should I have any difficulties? Who is the gastroenterologist that you're going to want me to see? Who is the cardiologist that best manages individuals that are afflicted with diabetes? I think asking those basic questions will give you an understanding right then and there how much attention that primary care provider or internal medicine doctor how much emphasis they're placing on diabetes. Because like you said, they're managing everything under the sun and it's a difficult job fraught with difficulty, 60, 70, 80 hours a week, endless patients, time constraints. I mean, you name it and they're set up for failure and they do an amazing job overall. But ultimately, I think that patients with diabetes need to be gravitating towards providers that they have a common or shared interest with. I know plenty of primary care providers whose main interest in regards to medicine is the management of diabetes, and they're not necessarily endocrinologists. And I should also mention that you should never be afraid to ask for a referral to an endocrinologist if you feel that you and your primary care provider, despite deliberate efforts, are not getting the goal or the outcome that you're trying to achieve. And I actually agree with all of this for all health issues, because I have a lot of people who think like, oh, this is my primary care doctor and I've got to stay with them no matter what. And sometimes I'm like, those primary care doctors are great for some people and maybe they're not the best fit for you. Maybe their specialty or their emphasis isn't what you need. And I found that out when I was dealing with depression years ago. It took me two years until I found a doctor that fit with what I was looking for. And so I'm glad hearing it from a doctor that you're saying, yeah, interview them, ask them a few questions, and it may be a great fit or it may not be a great fit. Carolyn, I, I can't overemphasize enough what you just mentioned. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about mental health as it pertains to diabetes and a lot of research is coming out. And it's, it's amazing how many people are struggling with depression and anxiety, not to mention just the state of the world right now, but specific to diabetes alone. And if we're not looking for those signs and symptoms, if we're not trained to be asking specific probing questions, it's going to get missed. And like you said, it, it could take years to find that right individual. But when you do, your overall health and wellness can just rise exponentially. I, I think it just needs it's it's a team. It's a team sport. Healthcare is a team sport, and it takes collaboration amongst everyone involved, including the patient. Right. I agree. And it's okay for patients to say to their doctor, thank you so much for your time and move on. There's nothing Absolutely. wrong with that. Absolutely. I think the first appointment should be nothing more than an interview. Well, thank you for sharing that. But now I'm really intrigued about mental health, the depression and anxiety with diabetes. I never really correlated those two together. So that's sort of a new correlation. Yeah. So it's interestingly, I, I've had the opportunity to speak with some fantastic 
clinical psychologists and a few other individuals that come to mind. And there's been a lot of research coming out of University of California, San Francisco. There's been some global collaboration in regards to mental health with diabetes. I would say most of it coming out is relatively recent within the last several years. Uh, I think it's still in, in research phase. You're starting to see some papers come out that are, are very profound because I think we're seeing that individuals with diabetes are definitely struggling, whether it's quality of life, whether it's self-worth, whether it's just anxiousness, depression, uh, what does the horizon look like for them? I, I was talking with one individual. I found this to be an astonishing figure. An individual with diabetes, and I have to give credit to Dr. Nagra, Harpreet Nagra for this, because I find this just, like I said, it's baffling to me. An individual with diabetes has 125 more decisions to make on a daily basis than somebody without diabetes. I can barely make the decisions that I have on my plate on any given day. Imagine 125 more on an average day, and then I have to get up and do it all over again. Wow. Okay. I'm, I'm a little confused. What are the 125? Just like what they're going to eat and the better choices of what they're going to eat, things like that? I think it's a combination of all of those things. What do I eat? When do I eat it? What medication mm. am I taking? When do I take it? Do I need to go to the pharmacy? Am I getting my sleep? You know, all these different right. things. I think it, it it's a trickle down effect from my perspective. Obviously, I'm I'm not in the mental health arena, uh, but the individuals that I speak with just talk about how devastating diabetes can be on, on one's mental outlook. That actually makes a lot of sense as I think about it, because it's a constant stress of, are my blood sugar levels okay? Are my insulin levels okay? And I know it's even a worry during the night, like, are things right. going to stay stable during the night? And then I know with kids... And those with type one diabetics, especially as they become teenagers, then the hormones throw insulin levels off. And then the, you know, moms are trying to figure those levels out again. So I get it now that I think about it. I'm like, oh, there is a lot of stress, a lot of concerns that they're thinking about and a lot of decisions that they are making every day. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a lot. It's a lot to manage. It is. Okay. So we've talked about the feet being a concern with diabetics, mental health being a concern. What about the kidneys? I always hear about the kidneys being a concern with diabetics. Right. So uh, chronic kidney disease is extremely prevalent. I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but individuals progress chronic kidney disease from stages one through five, five being in-stage renal disease on dialysis. And that's a huge deal, obviously. Those individuals are either waiting for transplantation. They may not be candidates for transplant. And what happens is that it's the same variables really that are affecting all of the different systems. So we talked about not having great sensation to the feet, specific to the lower limb, and the fact that the elevated blood sugar or the glucose, right, that's sitting in the bloodstream that doesn't have the insulin to help transport it to get it to where it needs to be so that it can be stored for energy for future use. The glucose in the bloodstream is it's naughty. It doesn't like to do things appropriately. So it gets into the blood vessels. It causes inflammatory processes. It causes smooth muscle migration. It causes plaques. And so what happens is there's several variables between the blood vessels and the nerves. Once again, we're starting to see this thing where both of those are kind of attacking everything. 
affects the kidneys in the same way. So whether it's the the ability to process your urine, right? So now we start getting protein in our urine and that's one of the early signs of proteinuria and glucosuria if you have sugar in your in your urine. And these different variables over time contribute to chronic kidney disease, which is obviously progressive if not managed appropriately by their nephrologist or kidney doctor. And so once again, an early and often approach from a primary care doctor would be screening for protein in our urine, our creatinine values when we're looking at our, our blood values, when, you know, when we go give blood for our physicals and things like that. And if it's caught early enough, we can help try to minimize the effect. If it's not caught and we don't know it's there, then obviously that becomes one of the significant complications of diabetes once again. And it's extremely concerning because just in the Fresno County with number of individuals on dialysis across the country. Oh, wow. That is, yeah, that's amazing. Well, thank you for explaining that. So are there any other tips that you want to share to those with diabetes, those struggling with feet issues, anything like that? I would say specific to anybody that is struggling with or managing well diabetes or has a loved one with diabetes, we need to be advocating for their wellness first and foremost, but more specifically to the nature of the work that we do. We want to be seeing you early and often. So if we can see you once a month, we can stave off those wounds by 75 plus percent. The quality of life can be there. You can live a very active, healthy lifestyle. And most individuals suffer from the complications of diabetes, not the diabetes itself. So if you can get to where you're managing it well, the medical community can keep you going and keep you doing well. But you've got to ask those probing questions of those providers. You need to be a little leery. You need to be your own advocate. And like I said, I, I would treat each first visit with any provider that you're seeing as an interview. And our group provides questions with checkboxes of things that you should be asking your podiatrist or your primary care doctor in general, because we just want to see you do well. That's the point. Well, I love early, often an advocate because those three things for any health issue will really make a huge difference. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Kazell, for being here today. Tell my listeners where they can find you. So we're really easy to find, I promise. Um, it's at Sean Kazell DPM on Instagram and Twitter. Our website is Valley Diabetic Foot Center or... Another website is LPP Research, which is where we do all of our research group, our education programs, and things like that. Uh, we're trying to be more active on the social channels. Uh, you can always find us there. We're uh, trying to be a little more engaging. We're trying to provide educational content, both there and on the respective websites as well. Oh, I love it. I love that so many doctors are getting on social media and trying to educate people. So thank you for being one of those and doing that. Thank you so much. I think we're looking at individuals like yourself as inspiration because we're seeing the positive impact that you guys are having. 
And I think that if we can start getting more and more individuals that are willing to put educational material out there, uh, it will be impactful. I think so too. So I always end my podcast with asking my guests what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What have you found that to be? Okay, so if it doesn't have to come out of the top shelf of my cupboard, (laughs) then I would say the single greatest ingredient to life for myself would be persistence. Hmm. Because I've, I've never achieved anything that was extremely meaningful without thinking about giving up several times first. That is really interesting. That actually hit me pretty profoundly, to tell you the truth, because no one has ever used that one. And some days I think, oh, is this really all worth it? And then it is the persistence that keeps me going. And then I have those days that I absolutely love what I do. So I love that you chose the word persistence. Oh, well, thank you. I think about the challenges of many things every day, like you were just mentioning. And uh, you just got it. You got to keep, if you believe in it, you got to keep going. And uh, it doesn't feel that way most days. Uh, but then there's breakthrough days. Exactly. And the breakthrough days are great days. Exactly. So true. Well, thank you, Dr. Kazell, for being here today. I really appreciate you taking the time. And listeners, go follow him on social media. Carolyn, thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram.